Welcome to the fourth installment of our class, Mondays with the Modern Mystics. This week, the Reverend Mark Smith led us over Zoom, and so you'll hear a number of different folks' voices as we discuss Henry Nowen and Vita Dutton-Scutter. We hope you'll join us next week on Monday the 31st of March for our final class with the Reverend Lori Anzalotti, looking at Annie Lamott and Sarah Miles. You'll find the slides for this presentation on our website at holycommunion.net backslash mystics. Good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Interestingly enough, uh, you've already heard reference in our rector's voice to what has been one of the more contentious issues surrounding this topic, namely the pronunciation of our first spiritualist name. For those of you who are classically trained and familiar with French, we would refer to him as Henri Nguyen. On the other hand, Michael reminds me that we don't pronounce Gravois Gravois or Carondelet Carondelet. So in deference to our rector, we'll talk tonight about the wisdom of Henry Nouwen and Vita Dutton Scooter. In one sense, uh, the two of them could not uh, be more different. Uh, Nouwen uh, has a clear bias for the inner life, for a sense of spirituality that then becomes manifest. Uh, Scudder, on the other hand, uh, presumes that, and while she has a rich spiritual life, as we'll discuss in a moment, her bias is clearly for action. That's where she meets God, and that's where she presents God to the world. So what I'd like to do this evening is take uh, a few minutes uh, first to talk about uh, Henry Nouwen's life, uh, what led him to his various ministries, and then uh, perhaps engage all of us on the call in a discussion of three quotes that I think really displayed the depth of his insight. Uh, following that, we'll do the same for Vita Dutton Scooter. Uh, reviewing uh, her biographical information briefly, and then uh, extracting several quotes that at least I think uh, epitomize uh, her approach to a life of faith. Uh, I hope you'll join me in this because this uh, uh, discussion really depends on your participation. Uh, a couple of comments about uh, Henry Nouwen. Uh, as you might suspect, he was born uh, in uh, the continent of Europe, specifically in the Netherlands, uh, born to a modest family, and studied at the Jesuit College in The Hague prior to attending a seminary. Uh, Nan was ordained a Catholic priest in 1957, uh, and during the initial years of his priestly ministry, was particularly attracted to the challenges that parishioners presented in the pastoral counseling arena. Uh, he wanted to understand what from their lived experience of faith might be used to help them deal with the challenges that they experienced psychologically and emotionally. Uh, he began the study of uh, psychology, uh, did research uh, on Antoine Boson, uh, the founder of the clinical pastoral education movement, and uh, eventually continued studies in the United States at the now uh, defunct but renowned Miniature Institute 
in Topeka, Kansas under the leadership of Gordon Allport, uh, a well-known and highly regarded 20th century uh, psychoanalyst. Uh, in the midst of those studies, he developed not only an intellectual appreciation for what we might call the psychology of religion, but also a very pastoral understanding of the way in which might, one might intervene clinically uh, with people who find themselves uh, under stress. Uh, interest also began in the 1960s to uh, emerge in the area of social activism, especially around civil rights. Uh, he found himself uh, attending marches both on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma uh, and the March on Montgomery. He taught uh, at the university level in Notre Dame, uh, the Catholic Theological University of Utrecht, and Yale and Harvard Divinity Schools. Uh, and then perhaps uh, in one of the most pivotal moments in his life, uh, turned to uh, a year in upstate New York in a Trappist monastery to begin to gather a sense of silence, uh, to do what we just did a few moments ago in our contemplative prayer to try and get in touch with himself. What emerged from that were two things. One, he concluded he was not destined for the uh, monastic life, uh, but he also had a deep sense uh, that he wanted to be in a community, uh, living out his theology, writing, and taking care of people. And hence, perhaps uh, for what uh, uh, now in his best known, uh, he moved to the Laarche community in Toronto in 1986, where he focused his attention on building and sustaining a Eucharistic community, in this case, with people with physical and uh, mental challenges. Now, he published 39 books, hundreds of articles, and perhaps his best known work, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, is consistently ranked as among uh, the 10 hundred uh, classics of Christian spirituality. Other works uh, include The Wounded Healer, uh, an important uh, tract for all who are in the helping professions, and the focus of tonight's conversation, The Way of the Heart, Connecting God Through Prayer, Wisdom, and Silence. So first, now on, on silence. First, silence makes us sober. Mike, could we go back? I think I'd like to do solitude first, if we could. Okay. Uh, I think Mike is offline for just a moment. So I'm going to read for you the first of the slides. Uh, this is Nowen on solitude. Solitude is the place of purification and transformation the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the place of our salvation. For those who heard Lori preach yesterday, she reminded us that Jesus was particularly powerful in those moments after he had experienced solitude. And in those great and elevated moments of public ministry, he then abandoned the crowd and went back to solitude a place to be transformed, a place for that great struggle, that great encounter, 
where we get to know God and ourselves. Would anyone like to comment uh, on the importance of solitude in your spiritual life? I'll take a shot at that. Thanks, Michael. Um, uh, I always uh, struggled with prayer um, until I encountered um, more contemplative-like practices and um, really learned to be okay with solitude because of that. Um, You know, I spent most of my life just wanting to be around people and please people. I mean, that's kind of was my MO was, you know, be around people and please them. And when you're in solitude, there's nobody there to please. Um, and, you know, there's nobody there to distract me from, um, from who I am and, and what, are, what, are, what, what is my relationship with God. Um, at the same time, I, I, I've also learned the value of community um, I think because of that solitude, and um, I don't know. I just think it's a it's a wonderful gift that we as a church, and I mean the the Christian church in general, has sort of set aside, unless you're in a monastery, um, as this realm of you know introverts. But I don't think it has to be that way. Thanks, Michael. Uh, would anyone else like to offer observation on their own experience with solitude or desire to seek it? So I started um, living alone like two and a half years ago. Um, and I quickly learned that there's a difference between being alone and solitude. Um, and I think it's still something where um, I definitely don't always have the right balance. and. Right now, the fact that I'm home all day is kind of throwing that into relief that like, I'm really good at being alone. I'm not so good at like really being alone with just myself and not other things. Um, But I don't know where I'm going with that, but to me that difference is important and it's something that I still struggle with. I think it seems to me, Grace, you've touched on a critical distinction, uh, the difference between loneliness and solitude, or aloneness and solitude. I have lived alone almost my entire adult life. I mean, except for the two years I was in Chicago. And I love it. I have loved it from the first day. Um, Right at this point in our history is probably the hardest that I've ever found it because Um, I truly don't see anyone else and and normally I at least have the freedom to you know go out to lunch or whatever I want to do so uh, there's been um, I mean zoom is my lifeline right now (laughs) And uh, there's been a lot of loneliness in addition to solitude, but um, I do enjoy solitude a great deal. So, 
Thank you, Denise. Can we, why don't we transition to Nowen's uh, second spiritual concept for our consideration, that of silence. First, silence makes us pilgrims. Secondly, silence guards the fire within. Thirdly, silence teaches us to speak. I'm especially fond of this quote uh, because it's been with me now for uh, more than 10 years. Uh, I recall shortly after my father died, uh, I told my mother I was going to make a silent retreat at uh, Three Rivers Monastery uh, in uh, southwestern Michigan. And she asked what a silent retreat was. And I told her, and she said, you don't talk for five days? Uh, she simply couldn't comprehend it. And perhaps as I embarked on that retreat, neither could I. But by the end of that week, what I found sitting by the pond on the back of the property by myself was that silence taught me to speak in this case, to speak to my family about my love for my father and the impact of his loss, something that I had not been able to do in the weeks before. How about your experiences with silence? Or having silence interrupted? Silence is the best thing on earth as far as I'm concerned. And I almost, I mean, I guess all my life I've pretty much lived uh, very close to living in silence. So, um, because my family, you know, we, we only talked when we absolutely had to. So, um, yeah, so I love silence and I mean, I've been on a 30-day silent retreat and loved it, so, yeah. Other comments? Uh, I found the right icon to click on. There we go. Thanks, uh, Warren. I, I, I guess I've always... <clears throat> equated solitude and silence and see a relationship between the two um, uh, I don't know what to do with the fire within I don't know that um, I can relate to that idea but uh, certainly um, silence gives me the um, the chance to reflect and then you know maybe to speak so I can certainly um, appreciate the, uh, the third thought um, in that paragraph. <clears throat> Any other comments? Let's move on to uh, the last of uh, uh, Nowen's uh, prescriptions and that of prayer. The prayer of the heart opens the eyes of the soul to the truth of ourselves as well as the truth of God. 
The prayer of the heart challenges to hide absolutely nothing. I have to admit, I wasn't really sure what to do with this one in offering it up until uh, we concluded online worship services yesterday uh, with uh, the Episcopal churches in Portland and Fulton, Missouri. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Portland is 20 miles uh, east and south of Jefferson City. Uh, Fulton, uh, 30 miles immediately to its north. Both parishes currently without a priest, so we did a Zoom service. We got to that point in uh, uh, the service where we were to offer prayers of the people, and no one had their prayer book except for me, and I didn't want to read the prayers myself. So I suggested that we ask people to do something that we Episcopalians are not fond of doing, praying extemporaneously and reminded them of the six general topics that are to be addressed uh, in prayers of the people and asked each one who is online to take one of those topics and speak from the heart. It was absolutely amazing to me uh, to hear the depth of their thought uh, on such short notice, but even more so in the reflection after the service. And I pose the question whether we ought to uh, do a more traditional version of that uh, next Sunday and uh, to a person they said absolutely not they want to work on this. So I offer to you now and on prayer. How does it, how does prayer reveal the soul of ourselves and the truth of God? Sometimes in praying Words don't quite come, but, but there's a very strong feeling that's sort of indescribable. And I feel then that uh, God knows what I'm talking about or not verbalizing. And that's comforting. Other prayer and your experience of prayer. So listening to that, that prayer of the heart, I don't know if Cynthia Bordeaux credits uh, now and with that or Thomas Keating, it's, it's innocuous enough of a phrase that it might be sort of anybody that came up with it, but uh, Cynthia Bordeaux talks about the prayer of the heart quite a lot when she talks about centering prayer, when she talks about contemplative prayer. Um, and I just really like that I, she often talks about, and, and folks that teach in her style often talk about some of the work of prayer is moving prayer from here down to here um, and feeling the openness of the heart in contemplative prayer. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something I think we live up here a lot in our society these days and helping our attention move down. Thank you, Mike. Other, other thoughts about where prayer is evolving during this year's experience of Lent? I'll take a shot at that. Um, for me, um, 
and and I'm, I'm I'm sure this came from one of you great ministers in your your sermons and your shares, but um, uh, for me, um, where it's helped me <clears throat> sort of get to my heart is accepting that I really don't know what's going on. You know, I used I would always I would say that a lot, sort of because it sounded kind of contemplative to say that, but uh, I think we all are in that position now where we just don't know, we don't know anything. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard to be in that place, but um, I think when I'm in that place, I'm much more open to uh, prayer. And, and I guess that would be more the prayer of my heart. I don't always have the words for it, but um, I've got to trust that it's it's praying inside of me. Thank you, thank you, Michael. I think we've had in just these uh, past uh, fifteen minutes or so a, a brief but important glimpse of the richness of Nowen's thinking and uh, his perspective for us. Uh, as some of you know, Mike certainly very well, my predilection, my, my go-to spot for spiritual direction is with uh, 17th and 16th century Anglican divines. I just, I love their language and the way they frame issues. So modern spiritualists are, are new to me, but uh, now and, and as you'll hear in just a moment, Peter Scudder are two who really resonate with my soul. And so speaking of Vita Scudder, let's talk a little bit about her life. No small measure, uh, she's quite different uh, than, than anyone else. Uh, she was born into a very privileged and uh, upper middle class family in Boston in the first year of the American Civil War. She graduated uh, with honors from Smith's College in 1884. And after touring Europe for more than a year with her mother, she joined the faculty of Wellesley College outside Boston, uh, where her class, and this is important, think about this in the mid-1880s, social ideals in English letters. Of course, she thought until the day she died uh, and rated as one of the most popular and enduring courses uh, offered uh, to Wellesley students. Uh, early on, she became uh, uh, personally alarmed, uncomfortable, uh, as she said in her own autobiography, with uh, her access to privilege. And part of exploring how she might deal with that was the founding of settlement homes in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, uh, much like Hull House in Chicago where young college students took their spare time and assisted women in becoming, re-entering into the workforce, uh, escaping uh, journey within their own households, helping them gain an education uh, and advancing the cause of women. But she wasn't just an activist. Uh, she used the opportunity and the platform she had at Wellesley uh, to pursue a very interesting and I think critically important line of uh, scholarly inquiry, 
if for no other reason that it's the place where I find uh, the most excitement uh, in theology. Uh, she begins by posing questions about the morality of capital. How do you use it? How do you make it? And what are the moral consequences associated with it? And her point was simply this, that much of moral philosophy prior to that time had focused on those with financial means being charitable uh, and doing it with a good and gracious heart. She began focusing on the means of production. You know, were people being paid a fair wage? Were they living in appropriate conditions? Were they given the right to organize? Uh, so much so that when Wellesley uh, was offered a substantial gift from the Rockefeller family, she led a faculty protest uh, and uh, received threats and calls for her resignation and her firing. Uh, thankfully, uh, Wellesley retained her, uh, but uh, she was forever tainted within uh, Wellesley social circles for her substantial stance. She was a member of the uh, American Socialist Party and the founder of the Church Socialist League, an Episcopalian group for church women. She published a classic work entitled Socialism and Character, laying out her views in the context of an Episcopal faith. So for all of us who from time to time have read works by people of faith and that discuss the manner in which uh, faith informs their activism. Uh, Scudder stands as a giant uh, in that tradition. One of her clear contributions and something uh, for all of us who have uh, lived through uh, the uh, issues uh, related to Black Lives Matter and the need for change in our metropolitan area is her focus on the transformation of the embedded social structure as the only viable way to bring about social change. In her later life, uh, she joined the Companions of the Holy Cross, the monastic order, uh, religious order actually, I'm sorry, for Episcopalian women, uh, where they lived outside of the cloister, but still abided by a rule of life. And in her final writings, uh, we find her particularly drawn to the works of St. Francis Assisi because of the joy he found in his own poverty. And interestingly enough, radical though she was for her time, in Catherine of Siena, for her faithfulness to the church, even when misguided, her faithfulness to the church with the belief that only from the inside can change occur. Scudder is remembered as a giant, uh, in fact, I found a citation that uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, also a Wellesley graduate, while not having her as a faculty member, remembers countless classes in literature uh, to which her works were refused and uh, the high esteem in which she was held. So I picked three quotes that I think uh, touch on various dimensions of the biography we just shared. Uh, the first is uh, Scudder on Catastrophe. Uh, particularly apt in the midst of this pandemic, I think. Jesus regarded catastrophe, no less than growth, as a normal and necessary element in human advance. He knew that violent disturbances were the condition 
and the preliminary of his coming. We cannot keep one factor in his teaching and reject the other. Dwell on the parable of the seed growing secretly and forget the lightning flash. We live in a faith and in a tradition where catastrophe regularly occurs, where salvation regularly occurs. What are we to make of catastrophe? as a function of spiritual of the spiritual life of we Christians. And how is the current catastrophe of COVID-19 informing that? It reminds me of what Mike has been saying about catastrophizing and uh, that seems to imply uh, making something out to be more of a catastrophe than, than reality. But catastrophe can also be, I mean, objectively real, a, a real catastrophe. So uh, I think that's what she's talking about here. I don't think she's talking about making a mountain out of a molehill. And um, it, is, it is kind of a normal and necessary element, and it gives the opportunity for coming out on the other side stronger, but you don't have to take that opportunity. Other thoughts? I think this is, um, <clears throat> this is one of those ideas that, um, that make, uh, that are, are, are very uh, difficult for me to accept. Um, and, uh, and I know that it's all over the Gospels, this sort of concept, um, and that the whole, the whole season we're in, you know, leading up to uh, the three days of the Triduum that, you know, couldn't happen, you know, Easter couldn't happen without those other days. And, uh, but I sure don't like to, it's difficult for me to, to look at that and, just um, you know, I don't want any, I don't want any catastrophe, but I guess if that's if that's you know God's way of you know putting things in my place. Um, it's just a difficult concept for me to to really uh, grasp and accept. I guess that's a better way of saying it. I very much appreciated Mike posing the question. Uh, earlier, uh, as we did the checkup, when he asked, talk to me or talk to each other about challenges and blessings. Because I think, in that sense, he's really asking the Scudder question what, what are we learning in the midst of this crisis? So, there's a poet that I really like, Nayira Waheed. Um, and Nayira is a queer black Muslim woman in New York um, who 
would probably have a thing or two to say to a group of mostly white middle upper middle class uh, Midwesterners talking about catastrophe. Um, but one of the poems that I really love of hers says, I don't worry about the world ending. For me, it has ended several times and begun yes. again in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. A lovely reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Peter also has something to say about our sacramental life. If catastrophe and growth are part of advancing the human experience, so is a clear focus on a lived sacrament, where she says, it is dangerous to avoid applying Christian principles to social and industrial life by relegating them a purely spiritual sphere. That time-honored evasion contradicts the whole sacramental philosophy. The very point of the great truths radiating from the incarnation is that one harmonious law runs through all spheres of being. Hmm. For a parish as active as ours, this should get our juices flowing. <laughs> um, Who'd like to take it on? Very uh, simple. Uh, answer or comment. If Christian principles were applied to social and industrial life, what a world this would be. Do, you hear, do we all hear her distinguishing between making those principles simply spiritual principles, things that we talk about on Sunday morning in church? or in our prayer life, and juxtaposed against taking those Christian principles into the workplace. Hmm. Hmm. Well, just the golden rule, <laughs> treating a fellow man the way we want to be treated if we don't do that wherever we are, you can't just allocate that to something in your mind or heart. It's interesting, Marlene. One of, I think one of the great acts of uh, Eucharistic liturgy actually involves you and several others in the parish as lay Eucharistic ministers. That time where you gather at the rail and Mike sends you on behalf of the congregation out to share our sacrament. Uh, it becomes the, the quintessential beginning of what a sacramental philosophy looks like. It's the church moving outside its prayers, outside its walls, outside its pews, and into the world. And then by extension, it's not just taking communion to the sick. It's by changing the world. Hmm. Any other thoughts on your concept of a sacramental philosophy and how uh, sort of what we hear on Sunday mornings, uh, the challenges and blessings of trying to implement on Mondays? 
not, then finally, let's move to the last of the quotes from Scudder. I control the slides, so I'm going to get my word in before I do that. Um, and I'm not going to talk for too long because I wrote a whole master's thesis on it. But uh, <laughs> one of the things that's um, particular, uh, it, it seems to be particularly Anglican, at least in terms of an emphasis. But you know, there was this big fight between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics for about 500 years about what happens to the wafer. Does it become Jesus really? Or how does that happen? And there are all these words like transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Mm -hmm. And really anymore, they mean the same thing after Vatican II. But um, what the Anglican emphasis in that, there's been this sort of unique emphasis on receiving Christ that we don't forget that the wafer gets handed to somebody. And that for me has made this time tricky because I have a hard time celebrating Eucharist when the majority of the people that are attending the service are doing it digitally and then can't receive it. Um, there are some churches that are still doing Eucharist and like the five people there receive on behalf of everybody. And that just seems weird to me. But the I think a piece of that Anglicans have always been pretty emphatic about what happens on Sunday morning is to remind you that you are you receive Christ's body so that you can go be Christ's body out in the world. That the transformation that happens really has, you know, if it has something to do with the wafer, it has more to do with the congregation being transformed again and again and again uh, into the people we hope to be. So um, in, into Christ's body in the world. So for me, that's, you know, when you talk about uh, a sacramental uh, philosophy that goes through the week, and, and I can go on for hours because I wrote a paper about it. But um, but that's what I'm <laughs> I'll give Mark his next slide. <laughs> well, and as Mike is bringing up that next slide, uh, there's a quote that I've used uh, on several occasions and in at least one sermon from Teresa of Avila, who reminds us that uh, Christ has no no one but us in this world, no hands but ours, no feet but ours, no eyes but ours. We are the love and the presence of Christ. Uh, and I think Lisa would have made a good Anglican. She would. <laughs> and finally, Scudder on capitalism. Really, this is the strength of uh, her scholarly work. We're not allowed to forget that our industrial system virtually said, cursed are the poor and cursed are the meek. Christian manufacturers, instead of giving unto the last as unto the first, are likely to buy their labor as cheap as they can get it and are often disposed to fight a living wage to the finish. The permanent contradiction between Christian morals and world morals is a puzzle and a permanent disgrace. She cuts no slack for people. Mm -hmm. That's about yeah. as biting as it gets. Yeah. Any thoughts? I'm thinking of this as being particularly salient as our entire society is reminded how essential grocery workers are. Um, and that quote unquote unskilled labor, I mean, those are, those are our essential personnel right now. Um, and where would we be if they had been getting a living wage, you know, from the beginning? And it's shown in how hard it is to get the minimum wage raised. 
about how easy it is for a bonus or a perk for somebody already in the top 1%. This is a this is a topic that has been front and center for me, um, particularly recently. Um, it just it's my hopes of this this uh, catastrophe is that it helps us as a society reconfigure some of our priorities. And um, I don't know if that's a that's just a. <laughs> an idea I'd like to think about, but uh, it sure is pointing up to me and I'm, um, just the, how, well, you all know it, uh, how inequitable things are. I mean, there's just, it's, it's staring everybody in the face, you know, those with means can do, uh, take care of themselves, but this, uh, this virus is, you know, it's going after everybody. And, um, I don't know. My hope is that that maybe we come out of it as a society um, with a little more balance um, in terms of our uh, capitalistic nature. Michael, you seem to be very optimistic uh, in that wish. I I, I can just uh, hear our president making. Uh, or even the Republican Democratic divide uh, um, over save the uh, corporation or save the uh, low wage worker. Um, he, he the buyouts for these large corporations and the CEOs using the buyout money to uh, you know. Uh, benefit the, the, the stockholders and, uh, and not helping the people that the buyout was intended for on, on, on the last crash. I, I don't know, um, maybe I, I wish what you wish, but uh, I maybe am a little more um, pessimistic. And I, I can't believe this woman has made this statement that long ago. I mean, it's absolutely as true as true can be today. Um, yeah. It's interesting on the uh, nightly news uh, on NBC immediately before our call, uh, the story broke that uh, uh, of the hundreds of thousands of people being hired by Walmart, Amazon, and grocery stores around the country. And I thought the, uh, the loving but just scathing question that was posed at the end of the story was, we wonder whether or not any of these employees will be given protective gear. Oh, God, yeah. Um, Mark, I had a question. I'm sorry? There we go. Um, was Scudder influenced by Marx? Yes. Uh, she was an avowed Marxist uh, into the 1930s and only uh, turned her back on Marxism per se uh, because of the abuses of uh, 
uh, Stalin and his various purges and pogroms. Uh, but that sense of devotion to workers as the essence of capital formation uh, was something that she held from the earliest days to the end of her life. Thank you. Michael, I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, uh, share these thoughts about two of uh, the modern mystics who uh, shaped much of my thinking. And I hope next year I can talk you into letting us do something on uh, Jeremy Taylor and Richard Hooker. <laughs> I mean, Mark, it's always good to teach outside of your wheelhouse, too. So, um, thank you. That was our class, Mondays with the Modern Mystics. Join us next week at six o'clock for contemplative prayer. And then for our final installment in the series with the Reverend Lori Anzalotti teaching about Sarah Miles and Annie Lamont. We hope to see you then.